And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. We are here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives at 1150kknw.com. And I invite you to connect with me via Facebook. And you, of course, can find me there by my name. But we also have a special business page or a, a page for the show, which is Sunny in Seattle Radio. And if you go to that page and follow it, you will get um, little notifications of who our guests will be on any given week. Um, so you can find out who will be on the show. Um, my website for coaching, for business, and for all that good stuff, um, I've even finally got my book up there, um, is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And um, don't forget about uh, the website I've got for my book. So um, it won't be in bookstores until like January. It's looking like January 2019 is what they've told me. Um, so until then, I am offering it for free um, that you can access online. The website is unhitchedbook.com, unhitchedbook.com. And of course, the book is called Unhitched, Unlock Your Courage and Clarity to Unstick Your Bad Marriage. And it's really for anybody out there who is struggling in their relationship um, so it'll meet you where you are if you're considering whether to stay or go or you're already in the throes of divorce. Um, it's got a lot of good exercises and tips in there for how to do it gracefully, how to make the right decision for your relationship. And the cool thing is, even though, you know, as most of you listeners know who've been here with me for a little while, I am divorced, but I had a really awesome relationship with my ex-husband before he passed this year. And uh, a lot of the tools that we use to get to that really loving post-divorce friendship are what I use in the book. And you can use them while you're still married. And with some of my clients who have implemented them, um, people who've come into my office who said they were ready to get divorced um, end up implementing some of these tools and are now uh, making a go of it again. So it's really designed to help you at any point in that relationship. And then also along those lines, I want to, um, and of course that website is unhitchedbook.com. So um, another thing I want to mention along those lines, just while we're doing housekeeping, I've got an event coming up and I'm partnering with um, an attorney in town. She's awesome. She does collaborative family law. I've worked with her on a number of presentations before. Um, and then also a dear friend of ours. So there's three of us and we're putting together a little workshop. It's going to be on September 20th. It's at Windows Art Gallery uh, in the Wallingford neighborhood. And it's called Divorce Plus Art Equals Healing. And our little tagline is, come heal your heart by doing art. And you don't have to be an artist. If you've only looked at art and enjoyed it, you will qualify for this workshop. Um, I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, an artist. But we're going to be making a little piece. Um, it's kind of like a little diptych. So you know it's um, two canvases uh, placed together with a little hinge in the middle. It's kind of, I think they've used a lot like ancient religious artwork. We're not doing anything religious, but... Uh, anyway, we're going to get to create your very own art piece, and we're going to be focusing on um, something from your uh, pre-divorce life and something from your post-divorce life. And we'll be creating this piece for you to let go of the old and embrace the new. And it'll be um, just a fun evening on September 20th. I think that's a Thursday. So if you want more details, if you want to register, it's $25. bucks. we will provide everything you need for the workshop, and it's just a neat 
time to come together. And um, art therapy is one of those things where sometimes if you don't aren't comfortable talking about your emotions, you can't quite access them, or you just want to come have some release, you know, it's a really fun type of therapy to do. Um, so uh, just go to my website, goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And under the events page, you can find out details and register there. So hope we can see some of you guys there. Okay, so enough housekeeping. Um, I want to welcome on our awesome guest today. So um, you all know that I love Hay House Radio. And one of the hosts that I used to listen to on a fairly regular basis was Mike Robbins. Um, and of course, he has gone on to do some amazing things since his Hay House radio show, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, he is the author of four books, Focus on the Good Stuff, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Taken, Nothing Changes Until You Do, and Bring Your Whole Self to Work, which is the, his latest book, The Bring Your Whole Self to Work, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, you may not know this about him. I actually didn't know this until I began digging around a little bit more, but he is a former pro baseball player whose playing career ended due to an injury. And then for the past 17 years, he's been a sought-after motivational speaker who delivers keynotes and seminars for some of the top companies in the world. Um, a lot of them you will recognize, like Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Schwab, eBay, and even the San Francisco Giants. Um, yeah, and so you can check out. He's also got a great podcast now that um, is uh, aligned with the book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. Um, and that's really fun. I've been listening to some of those episodes as well. For more information, if you want to check him out while we are on the show today, it's mike-robbins.com. That's mike-robbins.com. And the full name of that book is Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. And lucky for you guys, we love freebies on the show. Mike has generously agreed to give away a free copy of his book today. Um, so we're going to do that in the second half of the show. I will go ahead and give out the number if you guys just want to call in or if you want to hold that number until we're giving the book away, you can do that so you can be ready when we announce it later in the show. And that number is 888-298-5569. That's 888-298-5569. Uh, Mike, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Hey, Sunny. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I really I feel really blessed because um, someone that I know you know pretty well, Scott Stabile. Um, yeah. Yeah, he wrote one of the little pieces of advanced praise for my book, and it was I through. saw that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's so awesome. He's just been Isn't so he? generous. <laughs> Great guy. Yeah, and I loved the, the Facebook Live you did with him around your book. Um, that was just a really great interview. I, I bet you enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. Scott's a great guy. We have uh, a mutual friend, Susan, who put us in touch a few years back and he and I've been connecting and it's been nice to see his great book came out last year and I love his work. Um, and I was honored that he took a little time to have me on his Facebook live and do an interview for his community. So I'm glad you saw me there and that's how we connected. Yes, absolutely. I was so excited because as I mentioned, you know, I used to listen to your Hay House radio show. And when yeah. he, uh, Scott mentioned that you had a book out, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to look that up and get Mike <laughs> on the show. This is awesome. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't hurt. Gosh, what does he have like a Facebook following of like 400,000 by now? Yeah. I imagine. <laughs> he's, exactly. he's killing it. Um, yeah. yeah. And then one of the other things that I've noticed in reading your book or listening to you, and I just had to ask about it. Um, yeah. So very important question. Um, I understand you are a Golden State Warriors fan. Huge, huge <laughs> Golden State Warriors fan. So I grew up in Oakland where the Warriors play. I still live here in the Bay Area. We live up in Marin County now, a little north of San Francisco. But um, baseball, you know, which I played and was always the, the sort of primary sport in my house. I also played a little basketball and 
Love the Warriors from the time I was a kid. I was born in 1974. They won the championship in 75, which, of course, I don't remember because I was only <laughs> a year old. Uh, but then they were terrible for basically like 40 years. I mean, they had a couple <laughs> seasons where they were OK. And then they just and then, of course, the last few years, even if you're not a basketball fan, you probably know the Golden State Warriors have won three out of the last four NBA titles and have been so much fun to uh, to watch both as a fan. But I mean, and it's the team that I've rooted for since I was a kid. But they also, to me, really embody they have incredible talent, of course, but they have such unbelievable team chemistry. Um, and it's so much fun to watch them play in the way that they play with so much joy. And there's just the way that they care about each other. So I always love, I mean, as a former athlete, I love looking at sports teams, both from the sports standpoint, but also just from the team chemistry and team dynamic standpoint, especially given the work that I do today with teams. So the Warriors are a great model for that, for sure. Yeah, I loved that you mentioned them in the book, and that they actually are special for us as well. My partner is from the Seattle area and was, of mm. course, a Sonics fan for many yeah. years until, yeah. and we're still we're still boycotting Starbucks at this point in our household. I, I hear you. I know it's rough. There's so many great sports fans in Seattle, and to have no basketball team is just heartbreaking for a yeah. lot of people up in the Northwest. You know exactly. But the the good news, you know, even though the team was sold and, um, of course, ended up in Oklahoma, but what that meant was that you know my partner, who is an avid you know NBA fan could pick a team that really felt aligned for him and of course yep. it just made sense he's been following the Warriors for many years and I I while I wasn't a huge sports fan before we got together I loved being in Seattle because Pete Carroll who's mentioned in your book as well yes. I'm, yeah. I just love his philosophy and who he is as a person and you just compare him to some of those other coaches out there and I consider Steve Kerr in the same vein just these guys that are so focused on really supporting their players, mindfulness, compassion. And that's you even mentioned this in your book. And I know we don't talk a lot of sports on this show, yeah. but I, I just feel like it's worth mentioning because when you find teams like this who, as you say in the book, Steve Kerr's team core values are joy, mindfulness, compassion and competition. I mean, gosh, yeah. could you ask for anything more than that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, what's amazing. And even the connection back to Pete Carroll, who of course is the head coach of the, you know, the, the football team, yeah. the Seahawks up in Seattle. And so, and, and Steve Kerr's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, you know, Steve Kerr played when he was in the NBA, he played for the Chicago Bulls and Mike, he played with Michael Jordan and um, Phil Jackson was their coach. And then he went on and played for the San Antonio Spurs for Greg Popovich, who still coaches yes, the Spurs. Love Pop. So he won, <laughs> yeah, he won five championships in the NBA. But one of the things when Steve Kerr was with the Bulls, there's a guy named George Mumford, who I also talk about a little bit in Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And George um, played basketball at UMass with Dr. J back in the 60s <laughs> and 70s and, and actually ended up um, coming in to work with the Bulls with Phil Jackson and the Bulls when Steve was there. And this was back in the, in the mid nineties, you know, and he was teaching Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr and all the members of the Bulls, the importance of mindfulness and teaching them how to meditate. And this was long before we were talking about mindfulness and meditation in the mainstream, which, yeah. you know, in the last five or six years now in sports and business and all these places, but Steve Kerr really was uh, impacted by that personally, as were a lot of the members of the Bulls. And so Steve in the way that he's, you know, been coaching with the Warriors has brought a lot of that with him. And Pete Carroll works with a guy named Mike Gervais, who's a sports psychologist down in L.A. Um, and Mike and George and I were actually all part of the same panel on peak performance at a conference a few years back called Wisdom 2.0 here in San Francisco. 
Um, and so the, anyway, I mean, there are, you know, again, a lot of people listening to your show and you probably don't talk a lot about sports, but I think not only as a former athlete myself, but if you do happen to watch sports and really to look at, you know, it's the ultimate vulnerability, if you will, to be an athlete and whatever sport it is, you know, mm-hmm. you jump in the pool as a swimmer, you get on the court as a tennis player, you get on the field as a soccer player, football player, you get, you know, me as a baseball player. I mean, to put yourself out there like that. And one of the things I love about watching sports is, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And even the greatest athletes sometimes fail and they fail publicly in front of a lot of people with people screaming at them. And, you know, yeah. it's kind of a, a metaphor for life. And then again, most of us aren't in the situation in life and I'm no longer in this situation in my life. My baseball career ended a long time ago. We're not playing sports like that. Even maybe if we're doing it, we're doing it recreationally, but in life and at work, we have the opportunity to either get on the court or get on the field and actually play or more often we sit in the stands and we comment on what's happening, mm-hmm. which doesn't actually really make much of a difference. Like the game of life and the game of work and the game of marriage and relationship, which you were just talking about, they happen actually when we get in the game. They don't happen when we're just standing on the sidelines watching the action. And so I always am looking in my own life and in my work as I coach people and I work with teams and leaders and organizations how do we challenge ourselves to really get in the game and play and know that when we play, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Sometimes it's really fun and easy. Sometimes it's really hard and painful, but like that's where it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it makes such a difference to me to know that the values that the, the team and the coaching and the staff all embody are values that align with mine. And it really, even though I wasn't a sports fan to be able to see those things playing out, as you mentioned, you know, in yeah. front of so many, it's just so it's just so special to me, and it's made watching sports so much more fun to know these backstories and to know the philosophies that have gone into what the magic that you're seeing on the court, like for now with the Warriors being how good that yeah. they are coming together. Well, and one of my own passions for my work, I mean, my story, and you know this a bit from from you know hearing me on my Hey House radio show in the past or my new book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And I I talk a lot about this because this has been my journey. But, you know, I played baseball as a kid all growing up and got a chance to play at Stanford in college, got a chance to play professionally with the Kansas City Royals, got injured. I hurt my arm when I was still in the minor leagues. I was 23 years old when I tore ligaments in my elbow. I was a pitcher. And then, you know, two years and three surgeries later, I, I was forced to retire from baseball at the age of 25. But I basically started when I was seven. Yeah. And you know, that process for me personally was challenging to work through and to kind of figure myself out without this big piece of my identity. But the other thing, in addition to, you know, I loved baseball and I was, you know, sad when, when it ended the way that it did, but I was also fascinated, especially by the time I got to college. And then when I was playing professionally, I was fascinated by the team dynamic because Mm -hmm. I was on some teams where we had really good talent, but the team wasn't very good. Yeah. And I was also on some teams where like the talent was, you know, pretty good, not fantastic, but the team was unbelievable. And it's like, that didn't always make sense. And, but after I, you know, I didn't quite, we talked a little bit about it in the, in those days when I was playing, you know, we talk about sort of team chemistry, but it was hard to define and no one knew exactly what it was, but you knew when you had it and you definitely knew when you didn't have it. And then I left that world. I moved back home to the Bay area where I still live and where I grew up. And it was the late nineties. I got a job working in the tech world 
And I immediately realized that whole team chemistry thing that I erroneously thought was a sports thing. I realized, oh, that has nothing to do with sports. That's a human thing. (laughs) Right. In business, in business, whatever type of business or whatever types of groups we're involved in, we call it culture. It's similarly sort of intangible, hard to define. But, you know, when the culture of a group, a team, an organization is strong and you know when it's not. And so I became fascinated. I mean, this was part of my own passion, both personally, I wanted to learn more about myself and try to figure out some of the mental, emotional, even spiritual practices that go into really being not just successful, but fulfilled. But then in terms of groups and teams, I got really fascinated by and almost obsessed with like, what actually creates the conditions for that kind of really healthy and positive team chemistry or team culture. And that's a lot of what I've been focused on and been teaching for the last almost 18 years. And it really comes down to what I've learned over the years of studying this and teaching it. It's some pretty simple stuff. It just takes some intention and some focus and some courage in order to really embody those things and bring them forth. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, you mentioned, you know, you, you, uh, your career in baseball ended a little sooner than you had planned or had hoped for. Yes. You ended up, and I'd like to just kind of walk through how you got to where you are now, 18 years into this, uh, you know, speaking for some of the biggest corporations in the world. Because so I'd heard you say on another, or maybe it was with Scott Sibyl, that you you moved back to the Bay Area, you worked for a tech company, then the bubble yep. burst. Yeah. How did you get, then all of a sudden, you know, you're on Hay House, and <laughs> how did that well, happen? Well, it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. <laughs> I mean, so what happened was, you know, so I get hurt, I'm 23 when I get hurt. I come back home, you know, I have my surgeries, I'm trying to rehab and come back and play baseball. That doesn't happen by, you know, my 25th birthday, I went out to dinner with my family and basically just said, I was thinking about trying to, you know, keep playing and get picked up by another team. And I just said, you know, I I can't do it anymore. It's just my body's telling me I need to find something else to do. And I'd already actually started a few months prior to that. I'd gotten a job, which I kind of thought was just, I need to pay the bills. I got to find something to do. And so I was working for this tech company and Anyway, a few years later, I mean, the, the dot-com thing's happening, and I'm like, well, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I'm, I'll figure it out. And <laughs> it seemed like people were making a lot of money in the tech world, so like, okay, I'll do that for a little while. And, and then the bubble bursts. I lose my job. And, and it, what had started to really percolate in me, I was doing a lot. I was reading a lot of books, you know, people like Wayne Dyer and uh, Marianne Williamson and Deepak Chopra. And I was I read a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson that came out in 1998. Mm-hmm. And that book really spoke to me, both because the wisdom in the book was really poignant. It was it was accessible. I really liked it. But as I read that book, I kept thinking to myself more and more. And it wasn't the first thought time I'd had this thought. But I was like, I want to do that. I want to like Richard Carlson to me seemed like he'd been an athlete. He would played tennis in college and he actually lived locally in the Bay Area. I didn't know him, but I was like, you know, he's about 12, 13 years older than me. I'm thinking, okay, now he's a psychologist, a PhD, but I just started, I started wandering into bookstores and I would end up in the self-help or sort of spiritual section. And I would be pulling all these books off the shelves to read myself. But I was like, I want to do that. Um, and I didn't know how, I mean, I was, and, and so anyway, when I get laid off, I'm 26 and I'm thinking, okay, the job market's terrible. I can't seem to find a job in the tech world for someone my age in the Bay area. I mean, everybody was getting laid off and I then started searching for maybe I could find a, you know, life coaching and business coaching was starting to become more of a thing. This was, you know, back in the year 2000. And I thought, well, maybe I could find a small company that does coaching or does 
um, I don't know, some kind of personal growth or, or organizational growth work that I could, you know, they could hire me and then they could teach me and train me. And I, I couldn't find that. I couldn't find it. And I'm like wandering around and I was talking to a mentor of mine and he said, well, if you didn't have to pay the bills or worry about the bills or you didn't, you know, everything we're taken care of, what would you do? And I was like, well, I would write and I would speak and I would just share my story. And he's like, great. You should do that. And I'm like, now? And I was like, I'm 26. And like, I don't know anything. I can barely pay the rent. What are you talking about? And he was like, well, you could wait till you think you figured it out or you could just start now. And that conversation coincided with me. I had just met my now wife, Michelle. She was my brand new girlfriend and she had started her own staffing company. Um, and she encouraged me. She's like, listen, starting a business is hard and it's scary, but it's like, you can totally do it. It's not that hard. Like, you know, and so the beginning of 2001, I just decided like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I went and got some coaching training at the coaches training Institute. I was like, I want to start figuring out how to share my story, both speaking it. I really wanted to speak and then writing, which I didn't love to write, but I was like, I got to sort of figure out how to put some ideas down on paper. And, and that was the beginning of it. And, you know, people said, Oh, go back to school, get a PhD or get a master's in psychology or in organizational development or go, you know, I, and as much as I love, love learning, I never love school. Mm. So I was like, you know, if I have to, I will, but I want to design my own curriculum. And that's what I wow. basically did. I took every workshop and, and course I could afford yeah. <laughs> and, and read as many books and listened to as many audio cassettes in those days as I could. And just, you know, I figured at the end of a year, if I didn't have any business, I'd probably be broke and maybe even in debt. But I figured if I went back to school, I'd be in debt anyway. So, <laughs> you know, I was like, at the end of the year, if I, if I have to go back to school, I will. If I need to go find a job to pay the bills, I will. And, you know, the year, the first year was pretty lean, but like enough things happened in the course of that first year for me that gave me some signs. And what ended up happening this is a long, long answer to your question, but I started getting invited by companies to come and speak about team dynamics and about at that time wow. in 2001, 2002, a lot of companies in the Bay Area, companies like Wells Fargo, companies like Kaiser, companies like Chevron, sort of more traditional companies were hiring a bunch of younger folks that were about my age that had worked in the tech sort of dot com world. Yeah. And baby boomers and Gen Xers were having a hard time working together and communicating because like it was different styles and approaches. And so I started kind of speaking about that and that message along with some messages around appreciation and gratitude really started resonating. And I just started getting invited places. Would you come and talk to our team? Could you come and speak at our meeting? And I was like, yes, sure. Okay. You know, <laughs> and it sort of evolved from there. I mean, there was a lot involved And then my first book actually didn't come out. Focus on the good stuff. My very first book came out 11 years ago today. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, uh, yeah. And so I actually, it just popped up today on Facebook because I had, I, I forgot. And then was like, oh yeah, today's the anniversary. But that journey, it was, you know, five years, 25 rejections and finally got a publisher, which wasn't Hay House, a publisher Wiley um, agreed to publish that first book. And, uh, you know, but that was probably, you know, six and a half, almost seven years after I'd started my business speaking and coaching. Yeah, and it's so interesting to me, and I know we're we're here to talk about your book, Bring Your Whole Self to yeah. Work, <laughs> and I want to get to some of that content, but I just want to point out that your story is so inspiring, and so for people out there, that what you said about the, the mentor that said, you can either wait to figure it out or just start now, yeah. and you did, and looking, while I imagine leaving baseball when you did and how you did was painful at the time, it just it reminds me of this Steve Jobs quote that I that I share sometimes on the show, especially times like this, where 
You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can mm-hmm. only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. Um, and I just think, wow, looking back, all of everything, you were so perfectly set up for what you do today. And that's why you've been so successful. Well, thank you. And by the way, that Steve Jobs speech, which was at the Stanford commencement in 2005, which, by the way, anyone listening, if you have not seen that speech, just Google it or go on TED or where. I mean, it's it's an amazing speech. But that quote that you just shared from Steve Jobs is so poignant. I got goosebumps as you were sharing it because it is so true, right? It's yeah. like we connect the dots looking backwards, right? But we can't do it. And and at some level, I was actually just talking to someone about this earlier in the week who was asking me similarly, like you just did the story of like, well, how'd you get started? What'd you do? And I said, you know, I shared the story about what my mentor asked me, but I also said, you know, I've always tried to embrace the philosophy of jump and find your wings on the way down. Yeah. Right. And, and <laughs> I think again, and I'm somebody like a lot of people, I'm sure people listening can relate to this. Like, you know, I like to do good things. I like to be well perceived. I like to look good. Like most human <laughs> beings do, right? Like I don't like falling flat on my face and, and making a fool of myself. And I think sometimes that can get in my way as I think it gets in a lot of our ways is that we think that we have to have it figured out or we have to know how to do it perfectly before we do it. And unfortunately, you know, that's often what holds us back yep. unnecessarily. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect note to take our break on. And because when we come back, part of what you're talking about is exactly what you address in the book, bringing your whole self to work, even if there is fear of failure, even if you are having to get a bit vulnerable. Um, and you have some wonderful principles in there about how to do this and research about how actually it works so much better for companies and employees when you do bring your whole self to work. So <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we are going to take our break. Um, you are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm joined today by uh, author Mike Robbins. Um, you may know him from Hay House Radio. You may know him from some of his big keynote speaking that he does around big organizations like Microsoft, Google, and others just like it. Um, and don't forget, guys, we are going to be giving away a free copy of the book in the second half of the show. I'll give out that number one more time right now just so that you can be ready when we do make that announcement. Um, the number is 888-298-5569. That's 888 888- Two nine eight five five six nine, and we're going to take our first, or sorry, our only break. I'm still not used to only doing one break. Anyway, we're going to take our break, and we'll be back in just a few. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available for pre-order today on Amazon.com. The stigma of addiction is destroying lives across the country, preventing our loved ones from getting the help they need. We are Shatterproof, a national nonprofit dedicated to ending the stigma and devastation addiction causes families. We are changing laws, 
creating a community of support and providing evidence-based resources for prevention, treatment, and recovery. Stigma shatters lives. Rise up against addiction now so another life isn't lost. Get involved at shatterproof.org slash rise up. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. After countless tries to find healing for a devastating low back pain, Dr. Andy Marone met with his mentor and discovered a balance and clarity he never thought possible. He left his job as a software engineer and began a lifelong journey of learning the power of quality chiropractic care and enzyme nutrition and never looked back. He believes in not just treating pain, but removing roadblocks and paving the way to a happy and healthy life. Join Dr. Andy's Wellness Corner, Mondays from 9 to 10 a.m. on Seattle's Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Notice anything different? You should. There's no other station like Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. That's good. Yeah, we've got our guest producer in the studio today while Benny is on a rare vacation. So very on point with the music, just like Benny is. Um, so I'm here today with Mike Robbins, and we're discussing his latest book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulner- Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. Um, so, Mike, we talked a bit about your story and how you came to do the work that you're doing and how really yes. it set you up beautifully for what you do now. And, gosh, you've worked within some major, major corporations so you ha- and within teams in terms of the sports um, atmosphere as well. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned about, you know, what does it mean to bring your whole self to work? And what have you learned about doing that? Well, it's fundamentally important and uh, it's also hard, (laughs) right? It really means acknowledging that we're all vulnerable, imperfect human beings doing the best we can, right? And it's it's about having the courage to take risks and speak up and you know, have compassion, ask for help, connect with other people in a real way. It's, it's, you know, a lot of things I would imagine you probably talk about on your show here with, with a lot of your guests, um, with respect to relationships, with respect to kind of personal growth and development. It's about bringing all of that into the work that we do. And what I've noticed in, in my life and in my work is that sometimes, I mean, again, just using, um, you know, I go speak at, at like at a Hay House conference, let's say my publisher Hay House used to put on these great events called I Can Do It. And we'd come and a bunch of us would come and we'd be talking all about personal and spiritual growth and all these different wonderful topics. And, you know, it's funny. I remember being at an event. I think I was in Denver, uh, a Hay House event back three, four years ago. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. She said, my boyfriend he works for Charles Schwab and he saw you speak at a conference like six months ago and he loved it. And I said, Oh, that's great. I said, is he here? And she said, Oh no, he would never come to this. Right. (laughs) And I said, really? Why? And he goes, Oh, he just thinks this is all weird and it's too touchy feely and whatever. And I said to her, I was literally about to walk up on stage. I said, you know, what's really funny. I'm about to get up on stage and talk about basically what I probably talked about at that Charles Schwab conference that he was at. I was like, it's just in the context here. And she looked at me kind of funny and I said, you know, it's all just about being human. Like that's what my work is really about. And as simple as that sounds, I think, and the world is changing and evolving and getting a lot better. And a lot of organizations, both big and small understand this, but I still think we have this notion of kind of like, well, there's my personal self and how I am at home and with my friends and family. And then there's my professional self. Uh And you know, look, the way we work and the way the world operates today, I mean, it just, that's not the way that's just not the way that it is. And, and if the more separation there is between who we really are and how we show up in our work, often the more stress 
the more frustration, the more disconnection we have with ourselves, with the people around us. And, and actually, the research shows us the less effective we're going to be individually and the less effective our teams and organizations are going to be. Yeah, and you had some interesting statistics in the book, um, one of them from a Gallup poll. Um, 32% of people in the United States are engaged in their jobs, and worldwide the number is staggeringly low at 13%. Yeah. But yeah, and so what you found is that that engagement, like the desire to really be there and serve and show up for your company and feel good about what you're doing, that increases when we're being able to be our whole self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, as I go through some of the principles in the book, you know, I focus a lot of the first principles on being authentic. The second principle is utilizing the power of appreciation. And on that one specifically, like they did some, you know, so this, the engagement numbers are really kind of depressing when we look at them, right? Yeah. If 32% of people in the USA, they're engaged in their job. That means almost 70% of people are not engaged. Right. And, you know, worldwide, it's like 87% of people are not engaged in their work. And now look, one thing we have to acknowledge is it is a, a privilege. It is, um, you know, it, it's something that any of us who have work that we do enjoy, that we find meaningful, right? That's remarkable yeah. because in some environments, in some places, both here in the U S and around the world, like, look, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to pay the bills. I'm just trying to make sure I have food on the table for my children. I mean, look at, there is a survival aspect of working and making a living that we all have to acknowledge. And so yeah. being able to think about how do I have meaningful, joyful, fulfilling, impactful work is, is a privilege in and of itself. That said though, there are often just simple things that can shift our relationship to the work that we do glassdoor.com which is actually located right here in Marin County where I live they you know they're it's a place where people can go and post their honest um, anonymous you know reactions to working somewhere so if you're looking for a job and you're like hey I want to work for company X let me go on glassdoor and see what the reviews are it's kind of like Yelp but for <laughs> employers right and um, they also do a lot of research about the state of work today and one of the the statistics that I found when I was researching for Bring Your Whole Self to Work is 52% of people said they would have stayed at their job longer if they f felt more valued and appreciated. Wow. And 81% of people said that they were more motivated to work harder and engage more when their boss, their manager, their supervisor appreciated them. And it was, I think, like 37% of people said, I'm more motivated when my boss is hard on me and, or he or she you know, scares me that I might <laughs> lose my job. And so when I'm talking to managers and leaders and I'm like, look, if you take the time, just a little bit of time to let people know they're valued and appreciated genuinely, yeah. that has a huge impact on their experience of their work and how engaged and how loyal they're going to be to the work that they're doing. You know, and again, I mean, a lot of us work in a lot of different creative ways. The, the nature of the Internet and technology today allows us to work remotely and from home for ourselves in lots of different capacities than we were even able to a decade or two ago. And, you know, so we have to really look at what are some of the barriers that might get in the way for me bringing all of myself to work and then opportunities or, or ways in which we do do that and to see where that can benefit us most. Absolutely. Um, so I want to just jump in here. And is, is this a good time, Nathan, to do a book giveaway? Okay, let's do our book giveaway. And I'll go, I apologize. I should have given the number out when we immediately came back from a break. So I'll repeat it a couple of times here so you guys have it. But if you would like a free copy of Mike's amazing new book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, uh, call in now. And the number is 888-298-5569. That's 888-298-5569. Five five six nine, um, And this is kind of a random question, Mike, because I actually wanted to turn to, I have some other questions to ask, but mm -hmm. along this line, this is not something you address in the book, but I'm just curious. 
So you know the book, The Five Love Languages? Yes. Okay. So what about when you're in a work environment, it seems like there aren't, well, maybe there are ways. I'm thinking this out as I'm saying it out loud. Um, So if you are showing appreciation to the employees, which we've just discussed, is a really big part of retention and engagement for employees is to feel appreciated. What if the love language isn't matching with how the employer is showing the appreciation versus how the employee is receiving the appreciation? Yes. Well, one of the things that, look, that's true. And for anyone who's not familiar with the five love languages, it's a great book. Yeah. Right? I think Gary Chapman wrote it. It's about, it's about relationships. It's an understanding, particularly our significant other, but also the most important people in our lives. Like right. what love language do they speak? Right. Yeah. They actually, you know, I think Gary and a guy named Paul White actually wrote a book called the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. Wow. So they, they took the model of the five love languages and applied it to work. Um, I can't remember what the five are off the top of my head at the moment, but that said, what I often talk about in this regard is one of the things that we need to do is understand that not everybody um, experiences appreciation the same way we do. Not everyone is right. motivated by the same things, right? With the, the concept of the five love languages, right? Yeah. So that what we need to do, what organizations need to do and what managers and leaders need to do is start getting curious and asking. For years, I've been saying, look, if you're not sure exactly how to have the people on your team feel most valued and appreciated, just ask them, <laughs> right? Wow. Ask them like what, what motivates you? <laughs> what matters to you? What, I mean, cause there's all these stories. I'll hear things like, well, you know, we did this thing and we gave this, we gave him this big award and then he, he didn't seem that excited. And then someone went and talked to him and he went, yeah, I was really embarrassed. Like that <laughs> felt, I didn't like that. And then it was like, well, wh- what's important to you? Well, you know, his family's really important. So, okay, we got him a frame and we put a picture of his family in the frame. We gave it to him privately and, oh, he put it up on his desk and he was so excited. Like that made his, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, so finding things. And another thing that I, I talk about this in the, in the book when, and, and this is a really simple but important distinction around appreciation. And this is true at work, but also in life and in our relationships of any kind is there's a difference between recognition and appreciation. Now, recognition mm-hmm. is positive feedback based on results, based on performance, right? It could, it could be, again, at work, you produce a result, you know, you finish the project, you hit your goal, you get some kind of recognition. Sometimes it's an informal, like good job. Sometimes it's more formal, like there's, you get an award or you get a bonus or you get right. But that's all, that's a reaction to an outcome. Appreciation on the other hand is about recognizing people's value. Yes. So appreciation is more about who we are, recognitions more about what we do. And so like even in a marriage, it's like saying, you know, thanks, honey, for doing that. Thanks for taking out the trash. Thanks for, you know, making dinner. Thanks Mm -hmm. for, um, you know, providing for our, I mean, those are all, those are important, but Mm -hmm. but those are recognitions. Letting your partner know, I really love this about you. I really value this or like, wow, I'm really inspired by you. Um, Thanks for, you know, I feel really connected and close. I mean, again, it's a little more intangible, but it's more letting them know the positive impact that they have on us and or what we really value about them as human beings, not simply just thanks for doing that wonderful thing. Both are important. Both are expressions of gratitude, but one is a recognition. Think about recognition. If we focus mostly on recognition at work and at home, we're setting up a very conditional environment where it's like, oh, you did that good thing and you get recognized. No, look, at work, there is a part of it that is conditional. Produce result, you get recognized. We all understand that. However, valuing people for who they are has them feel more connected, more safe, and actually creates the conditions where they're more likely to produce the results. Yes, absolutely. 
And talking about these principles here that are outlined in the book, um, that you've got five of them here, and I want to turn to one. Um, of course, you just mentioned about um, uh, the uh, using the power of appreciation. Yeah. One of the first ones you mentioned is being authentic. And I yeah. feel like authenticity, being authentic, it's kind of a buzzword. Maybe it's I I'm yeah. kind of feel like it's losing some of its uh, <laughs> meaning at this point. And so I would yes. love for you to speak to that and also – I loved the story you shared, if you wouldn't mind sharing it, about your own experience of being incredibly authentic and vulnerable in that book pitch meeting for one of your (laughs) first books and just showing how, I just want this to be an example for those out there who may be afraid to show up authentically, look how it worked out for you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll start with the story and then go into answering your question. So yeah, this was, you know, I I mentioned in the first segment, you know, my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, came out 11 years ago today, back in 2007. And I about... Gosh, it was it was only about six months later, early in 2008, I was in a meeting with my publisher to pitch what I was hoping was going to be my second book about authenticity. And I show up for the meeting and my publisher, as I mentioned before, is uh, called Wiley. They're actually out on the East Coast. The, the actual imprint, uh, kind of a subsidiary of Wiley is called Josie Bass and they're in San Francisco. So I was in the San Francisco office of Josie Bass and I thought I was just going to be meeting with Alan, my editor on the first book and some of the people who'd worked on that book on, on his team. And I show up for the meeting and they were there. And Alan says, before we start, um, we're going to wait for a few minutes. And I was like, why? And he said, oh, well, Deborah's coming to the meeting. I was like, really? Now, Deborah's the president of Josie Bass, who I'd never <laughs> met up to that point. And he said, oh, yeah, and Deborah's boss from Wiley, he flew in from New York for the meeting. So I'm like, oh, great. You know, and I mean, I'm simultaneously excited, like, wow, they're really interested. But now I'm like terrified. Oh, gosh, <laughs> I was already nervous about the meeting and the pitching Alan and the team. But now it's Deborah and her boss. So we're waiting, you know, and I'm all pretending like, hey, it'll be great to meet them. But inside, I'm starting to really panic and think, oh, I should have prepared more. I should, you know. Anyway, Deborah shows up in the room and so does her boss. And they're very friendly, really nice people. Like they weren't super intimidating by their presence. But given who they are, now I'm really nervous. (laughs) And you know how you like start a meeting like that and you're kind of nervous at first and then it sort of goes away? (laughs) And that wasn't happening, right? (laughs) I go into my little pitch and say, Mike, tell us about the book. And a few minutes in, it wasn't like I was making a fool out of myself, but I was really getting more anxious, not less anxious. And I was having this like emotional wrestling match inside. And finally, I couldn't stand it. I just stopped and I looked right at, at Deborah and I said, hey, listen, I know I mentioned this when you came into the room. Um, it's really an honor to meet you. And I said to her boss, and you flew all the way from New York. I said, but I noticed that I'm feeling really nervous and I'm trying hard to impress you. <laughs> I said, can I stop doing that now and just be myself? Ah. Right. And right in that moment, like as it came out of my mouth, the voice in my head was yelling at me like, don't say that out loud. <laughs> what's wrong with you? Right. And I was like, but I did. And then after I said it, I sort of paused. And then there was like an awkward moment as I looked around the table, I could see the looks on people's faces. They were like, did he really just say that out loud? But something interesting happened after the awkward pause was that Deborah laughed. So did her boss. So did everybody else around the table. And so did I. And it was more, more than laugh. It was like, <sighs> yeah, I exhaled and said, well, listen, you know, I basically said, here's what I know about authenticity. It's really important but it's hard. And I want to write a book about that. And then we just started to have a conversation and it turned into, I mean, they decided they wanted to publish the book. You know, ironically it was, it's called be yourself. Everyone else has already taken. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that I learned that day is about it was really important. was like, Oh, you know, preparation's important. Absolutely. But sometimes what's as important, if not more important is being present and being willing to be real yeah. in the moment. Um, you know, and so the thing about to your question of what is authenticity, I started studying authenticity at that point to write that book. I've been studying it ever since and really 
refining kind of my own understanding of it, particularly at work and the way that I define it. And you're right. It does get overused. I'm glad we talk about authenticity a lot, but because we use it so much, I think people think of it. We use it's like a synonym for all these other things, transparency and honesty. And it it is, but it's, it's a little different. And so the way that I define authenticity is it's honesty without self-righteousness and with vulnerability. Will you say that again? So I, yeah, I call this the authenticity equation. So it's mm-hmm. honesty minus self-righteousness plus vulnerability. That's authenticity. And what do I mean by self-righteous? I often say it like this when I'm talking to groups of people. I say, how, how many of you, like me, have a lot of opinions? And of course, everybody raises their hand and we all <laughs> kind of laugh. And I say, how many of you, like me, think your opinions are right? <laughs> and of course, everyone's kind of, yeah. you know, that's self-righteousness. It's yeah. like, I'm right and you're wrong. And so again, authenticity isn't about being right about everything and speaking up about everything. It's about being willing to be honest, which takes some courage, being self-aware enough to remove the self-righteousness, not water our opinions down, but know the difference between self-righteousness, which is I'm right, you're wrong, and conviction, which is I believe this to be true. I'm willing to speak up about it. I'm willing to even engage and debate about it if necessary, but I have enough humility, enough self-awareness to realize I might be wrong, or at least there might be another way to see this thing. Right. And then adding the vulnerability, it takes a, a lot of courage. And as our friend, Dr. Brene Brown, likes, she defines vulnerability this way, which I think is so great. Vulnerability is emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty. Oh, yeah. And look, can you, there's nothing that we can ever accomplish or experience in life that means anything to us personally or professionally that is not going to involve emotional exposure, risk, or uncertainty. Yeah. So it's about leaning into that. Yeah. And I, I again, from your Facebook Live uh, interview with Scott Stabile, which I really encourage you guys, if you're not familiar with Scott Stabile, his fabulous Ice book. Cream. Yeah. Big love. Um, and he has a wonderful Facebook following where he's posting, encouraging really awesome things on a regular basis. So he did an interview with Mike. And one of the things that Scott mentioned, and I found this to be true in my own experience, because I'm really I'm treating social media right now as an experiment. I deactivated it after my divorce. I was off for mm-hmm. about four years total. And then, yep. of course, as I started my coaching practice, reengaged with it. And I'm really, you know, dipping my toe in in certain ways, trying certain things. And what Scott said and what I've also found to be true is that the minute that I start talking about problems, like not um, not whiny victim type things, but just right. sharing what is actually going on in my life, the struggles that I face from day to day, sometimes it's success, sometimes it's um, a learning experience. And those are the posts that get the most engagement is when I'm yep. actually real instead of curating what I look like and what I'm sharing so that I only reveal a certain part of right. me. <laughs> yeah. Right, and it's, tri- it's tricky for those of us in the, in the kind of thought leader advice space of the world that yeah. doing that kind of work. Cause it's like, Hey, I want to inspire people. Hey, I want to teach people. And there's a tendency to think that means I need to share some polished, you know, packaged, here are the three tips to having a fantastic life <laughs> right. thing. Right. And that's like, people are like, great. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I kind of feel like a mess today. And people are like, Oh my God, me too. Right. And it's like, you know, and so what's interesting, I mean, I've always believed, I love the saying, the more personal, the more universal. Yes, exactly. Right. Because the more we're willing to get real. Now, look, again, sometimes we got to be mindful of, am I oversharing lots of, you know, personal details about myself and other people? Am I whining and complaining in some victim-y way? Which, you know, we all do as human beings. But if, again, whether it's online, on social media, or just in general, but if we're willing to authentically go there and really be real about our own experience that tends to resonate with other people, even and especially if they don't have the same experience that we have, 
what's the universal part of it is actually the emotional experience, right? Yeah. You can, as you share just a little bit, even here about your divorce, right? Like I've never been divorced. My parents got divorced and, you know, but I know the feeling and you shared just briefly about your ex passing away. I mean, just a little bit of those experiences. It's like, I know the emotional experience of loss, of separation, of breakup, of heartbreak, even if my life experience isn't the same. And so the more we share about our experiences in real ways, then we can start to relate to each other at a deeper level because we all know what it feels like to be human. Yes, exactly. And, you know, on that, since you mentioned Brene Brown, and I will just say that my, I don't know about you, Mike, but in determining what to share and what not to, um, I love Brene Brown's, um, I guess, what she uses in her life, which is what I use as my example, is if I'm not healed on it, if it still has a lot of emotional charge, if I'm still feeling pretty raw, I yeah. don't share it until I'm healed on it or if yeah. I shared it with my own circle of compassionate witnesses and my friend group or whatever. Yes, yeah. absolutely. When I think, and, and I 100% agree with Brene on that with respect to, you know, publicly sharing our stories and all of that stuff. The one thing that I find that is a little bit of a caveat to that is the reality of life mm-hmm. and of working with people, right? <clears throat> if you're going through a divorce, if you have um, a sick child, if you have um, a real financial burden that's impacting your life, if you have to move, you know, these things that happen now, we don't have to share them with everybody we work with, right? But what I've seen and, and experienced myself and what I've learned through my own work is an ability and a safe place to be able to share that with the people around us. Now, we might have our own close inner circle of personal friends, but if I show up at work and I've got this major thing going on in my life and I don't feel safe enough that I can at least let a few people know about that, yeah, it, it creates a lot of tension and stress yes. in a lot of cases. Now, look, some of us are more private than others, but one of the things that we've learned, there was a study that I mentioned in the book that Google did this study a few years ago called Project Aristotle, and they were trying to study what creates the conditions for high performance. They Mm -hmm. spent three years, they brought in all these scientists and really, really smart people to study, not just at Google, not just in the tech world, but they spent three years looking at all of this data and information and metadata about work performance in different environments, and they came back with five key things that create the conditions for high performance, and the number one condition was what they call psychological safety. Ah. And psychological safety means basically trust at a group level. The group is safe enough for me to be myself, for me to share about, if I choose to, what's going on in my life, for me to disagree, for me yeah. to make a mistake, for me to you know, fail completely miserably and take a risk and know that I'm not gonna be shamed or ridiculed or judged or kicked out of the group for doing that. Yeah. And when that, so that's a really important thing. And again, you know, so do we and are we able to show up at work with our full self, with our humanity, with our joys and our pains and our excitements and our fears and know that, like, it's safe for me for to bring all of that. And the more that's possible or the more that exists in the environment in which we work, the more we can tap into our creativity, our innovation, our joy, our passion, all the things that are necessary for us to do really great work. Yes, and so I know as we're getting close to the end of the hour, I feel like this begs the question I have to ask before we let you go. What if we've got listeners out there who are in a job where they don't have that psychological safety, where they yeah. don't feel safe bringing their whole self to work? What do you tell those folks? Well, I, a couple things. First of all, more often than not, that's actually the case, is mm. at least in my experience. And I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist, and I travel around the country and around the world, and I see environments. There's a couple things you can do. Number one is 
first of all, look at it as a learning and growth opportunity, right? One of the principles I talk about in the book is embrace a growth mindset. If you're in an environment that doesn't feel super safe or you work for a boss or a manager or with people that you feel like, ooh, that person's negative or maybe even a little toxic, while protecting yourself and trying to create as much safety as you can, see if you can practice Use it like you were talking about social media as an experiment. What could I do? What could I say? How could I operate and show up differently that might not only potentially make this situation a little bit better in the short term, but is going to benefit me in the long term because this is probably not the last difficult person or situation you'll ever find yourself in. Yeah. Right. The second thing is you'd be surprised at how many resources there are inside of organizations, even when it seems like things are negative or things are toxic or things. There's there's human resource people. There's individuals. There's you. You people really want to work in positive environments. And so you have to go searching for them. If it's not abundant in the culture, go find some allies, not to go out to lunch to commiserate and whine and complain (laughs) about how bad it is, but other people like get other people on board with like, Hey, let's do what we can to make this a safer, healthier, more positive environment. Cause if we just sit in the stands and complain about it, it's only going to get worse. Yes. And you also use the example of um, uh, an individual named Chris, who you advised to see the bad boss as a teacher for this limited period of time yes. while he was there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause I said to him, look, this is not the last difficult boss you'll ever have. You're not going to have to work for him for the rest of your life. But if you simply go home and tell your wife what a jerk he is and tell everyone else, I can't stand him. You're not going to learn from the experience. But if you choose to like for however long I work for him, I'm going to let him teach me a bunch of stuff. And I said, one of the main things he's teaching you is how to deal with difficult people more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And my gosh, that's something that you can take with you wherever you go. You <laughs> for the rest that. of your life. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> oh, OK, so I want to make sure people know um, exactly where to find the book. So we've got the book is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection and Performance. Of course, I've been joined today by Mike Robbins, who I'm sure many of you already know and have probably several of his books already on your shelf. I um, mean, we did have a lucky book winner, right, Nathan? We did. OK, awesome. We've got a lucky book winner. Whoever got that book. Woo. Congratulations. Um, and the website is Mike dash robins.com that's mike dash robins.com um and so you know mike here we are coming to the end we've got like less than a minute left or so um do you have any final words for our listeners or a final message you'd like to leave folks with today that's a great question i think you know one of the things that just came to me as you asked that was like i just i'm really practicing this in my own life as best as i can is the more I think we can focus on being kind towards ourselves mm-hmm. and kind towards the people around us, particularly in the environments that we find ourselves in. And there's, there's, there's a lot of animosity and a lot of stress and a lot of division in our culture right now at work and in all other facets. So yeah. I just think bringing as much kindness and compassion as we possibly can, like I really think most people are doing the best they can, mm-hmm. even even the ones that sometimes might bug us or the situations that might be most challenging. So part of the way we bring our whole selves to work and to life is to really be as kind and compassionate inwardly as well as to as many people as we possibly can around us. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today, Mike Robbins. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for everyone out there, you've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. Join me next week as I interview my grand mentor, Brooke Castillo. Um, She has been um, a part of my life since I started coaching 
at the very beginning. And she is a coach who went from about 100000 in revenue to 300 k to a million. And her business is now at $15 million, And she is someone you're going to want to learn things from because she is killing it. Um, so join me next week as I interview Brooke Castillo. And thank you guys for joining us here today. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.